Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. Jotunheimen is the great mountain range of southern Norway. The 26 highest peaks in Norway are here. The valley of Bervedalen runs through Jotunheimen, carrying the waters of many streams that join to become the Bervra River. And the river swells throughout the summer as meltwater from snowy peaks and glaciers reaches the valley. There's an otherworldly feel to this remote landscape, a strangeness augmented by the colour of the river, a bright shade of aquamarine, which is caused by particles of sand from the glaciers catching the light. This area is a favourite of mine and my partner, Sonia. As we drive south down the Alpine Valley, in summer, of course, in winter the road lies under several metres of snow. As we follow the torrent of the Bervra River, there are scattered small holdings, there are sparse fields dotted with huge boulders, according to legend they were playthings for trolls, and on both sides of the road mountain massifs rise up to well over 2,000 metres. That's about 6,500 feet. At one idyllic stretch of the valley, we approach a small alpine hotel called Elversated, which means a river farm. The whole setting never fails to remind me of the way Tolkien describes Rivendell in his Lord of the Rings books. Rivendell is the secluded retreat of the elves. Apart from having almost identical names, Elversated and Rivendell share the same natural beauty. A watercourse, purple shadows in the valley, the sun illuminating mountain ridges high above. And both hold the same position in relation to urban strife, pollution, politics. That is, they exist at the exact opposite end of the world from all that. As we climb towards Elvisated, we get a glimpse of something extraordinary beyond the hotel and towering above it. One of the more unlikely sights we could imagine in this isolated place. A Viking warrior astride his horse, sword raised in battle cry. As we come closer, we see that rider and steed crown a column richly carved with images. This is Saga Sailor, or the Saga Column. The Saga Column stands 34 metres in height, that's a little more than the pillar of Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square, 
and the scenes that are sculpted on its façade are drawn from a thousand years of Norwegian history. We could be forgiven for thinking that we're dreaming, but we're not. So then we could be forgiven for thinking that a more suitable environment might be found for this magnificent monument, which celebrates Norwegian history in general and Viking warrior Harald Fairhair in particular. Perhaps the ideal place might be in the capital. For instance, outside the parliament building, the Storting, rather than in the quiet bosom of a remote alpine valley. Well, the truth of the matter is that in 1926, the Saga Column did win the competition for a national monument that would stand in the public square outside the parliament building. The sculptor was to be Wilhelm Rasmussen, and he was half finished with the work when in 1940 the Germans invaded Norway. During the war, sculptor Rasmussen was not only sympathetic to the occupying forces and to the puppet government of Norwegian fascists, he was even appointed by them to the elevated post of director of the National Academy of Art. Then, after the war, Rasmussen was imprisoned for treason. There was no longer any chance of his national monument, the Saga Column, being raised in the political centre of Oslo. Cancel culture today is a facet of the culture wars that are in progress, but while the catchy title, Cancel Culture, is new, the prohibition of artists and their works is as old, well, as old as censorship itself. Growing up in Britain, I remember being impressed, even as a boy, by the fact that during the Second World War, the BBC had started its radio dispatches to soldiers and operatives with the musical motto at the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Da 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 dee, da 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 dee. In Morse code, this rhythm spells out the letter V, and the British, then later all the Allies, used the music as a symbol of V for victory. The fact that the music was written by a German, no obstacle. Choosing to air what some might regard as enemy music, written in the early years of the 1800s, that's one thing. A different problem entirely faced Norwegians after the defeat of Germany in 1945. They had living among them many artists who had collaborated with the Germans. Artists were tried for treason in the same way as many other collaborators. But then there was the thorny issue. How should one relate to the artistic works of these people, their novels and poetry, songs and sculptures? Before the war, these works were admired, even loved. But the war changed everything. Now, I must make it very clear 
the level of unforced collaboration with the Germans in Norway was very low. In fact, in many ways, courageous ways, Norwegian society just turned its collective back on Nazi ideology. It started as early as the autumn of 1940, when all the sports associations went on strike to avoid being subject to Nazification. Their example was followed in December of 1940 by High Court judges, who all resigned in protest at the Norwegian justice system being usurped. As the Nazis tried to force their ideology on the Norwegian church, the trade unions, and not least the education system, they were met with wave upon wave of resistance. But there were a good many who threw in their lot with the occupier, and artists seemed to have been overrepresented. There are two facts here that may go some way towards an explanation. First, art is regarded as an expression of values. This was, of course, something pounced upon by Hitler and the Nazis as early as the 1920s in their criticism and later censorship of what they termed degenerate art. <laughs> that is almost all modern art. Unlike a bus driver or an accountant, it was impossible for artists to practice their profession without expressing something of their beliefs. The second reason many artists were sanctioned after the war? Well, a high proportion of them had developed in their student days a genuine taste for German culture. Norway's National Art Academies really only got going after independence in 1905 and still had a relatively poor standing before the war. In fact, the Conservatory of Music was only founded in 1973. So many students of the arts travelled to Paris, Copenhagen and to the great conservatories and art academies of Germany to learn their craft and to seek inspiration and fraternity. From 1945, all that was ancient history. After the Germans were defeated, many professionals whose work relied on close relationships with people doctors, dentists, teachers, if they'd chosen the wrong side during the occupation, well, many of them moved away to a place where people didn't know them. Some collaborating artists were tried and sentenced by the courts, but no official ban on artistic works was ever decreed. Leaders of the Norwegian resistance movement appealed, however, to the artist guilds, asking them to and I quote, remove from their list of members any persons who, by their having worked directly with the occupying forces or the Nazis, have betrayed Norway's cause. Authors, painters, musicians, who had been sympathetic to the Germans, found that they could no longer get membership of their creative guilds. And with the end of the treason trials, the great silence fell over society.
became a taboo in polite society ever to discuss openly mistakes made during the war by a relative or a neighbour or a colleague, or to read or sing the work of a discredited artist. Their works were for most part shunned by society, and quickly, astonishingly quickly, a stifling silence folded round them. How badly artists' lives and careers were affected, well, that was on a sliding scale, often determined by the medium in which you worked. Disgraced sculptor Wilhelm Erasmussen would not live to see his saga column taken out of storage, but on the other hand, none of the works he created before the war were removed. In Norway's third city, Trondheim, his sculpture of the city's Viking founder, Olaf Tryggvason, is still one of the main attractions. My hometown of Fredrikstad was founded by King Frederick II, and Rasmussen's 1917 statue of the king stands proudly in the old town today. With music, however, a composer's work has to be recreated, so to speak, each time it is performed. For this reason, the artist most badly hit by post-war cancel culture was composer Christian Sinding. On one dazzling evening in 1907, the Royal Academy of Art in Berlin gave its highest award to Europe's three great musical geniuses of the day. From Italy, Giacomo Puccini. From Germany, Richard Strauss. From Norway, Christian Sinding. Sinding was celebrated as the composer of three symphonies, three violin concertos, 250 songs, an opera, and wonderful chamber music. In 1924, Norway honoured him with a state-financed home inside the grounds of the royal palace. Well, Puccini and Strauss, their stars are still shining bright. But that third man. If one piece of sending music is known today, it's the insignificant and entirely unpolitical piano trifle called the Russell of Spring. Sinding's name and fame should be, there's only this potboiler. Now, cancel culture operates in black and white extremes. A public figure is either wholly with us or wholly against us. It's pretty seldom, of course, that either life or art operates in that way. And cancel culture can obscure what is often a more complex situation. The fate of Christian Sinding might serve as a case study to remind us of that. There's no doubt that Sinding was a devout admirer of German culture. But not every admirer of German art was a Nazi. In the 1930s, when he was around 80 years old, Sinding had campaigned for the rights of Jewish musicians. And he was appalled 
when the Germans invaded Norway in 1940. But by then, he was suffering from dementia. The occupying forces exploited both his fame and his poor mental health. A few weeks before he died, they enrolled him, almost certainly without his knowledge, into the Norwegian Fascist Party, and then coaxed him into a radio studio to talk about his admiration for Germany. His integrity was fatally compromised. There was no way back for Sinding. After the war, his music, his name, simply disappeared. one Norwegian artist whose status during the war and continued high status after the war is still today causing intense heated debate in Norway. I'm talking about an author who was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1920. In a tribute to this Norwegian, the great novelist Isaac Barshevis Singer called him the father of the modern school of literature in his every aspect. His subjectiveness, his fragmentariness, his use of flashbacks, his lyricism. And this is, of course, Knut Hamsun. Hamsun didn't have to be tricked by the Germans into broadcasting to the Norwegian people. In 1941, he was 82 years old, and only too happy to relate his dream of a new era in Norway under German rule. He said, I hear that some people are unhappy with German rule in Norway, that it is not legal under Norwegian law, as if life is subservient to the law. No, it is life that writes the laws. It would poorly suit the new Germany to take only half measures. It's best for us to accept how things are now. It's not only wise, it will be Norway's redemption. Hamsun's greatest years as a novelist were well behind him. Pan, hunger, mysteries, all belonged to the 1890s, while the work for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize, Markensgröde, The Growth of the Soil, was written in 1917. But Hamsun very much regarded himself as a spiritual flag-bearer for Norway's cultural life. He was a guest of Hitler at the Berghof in 1943, and after Hitler's death in 1945, wrote an obituary in the leading Oslo newspaper, Aftenposten. He called Hitler a warrior for humanity and a preacher of the gospel of justice for all nations. Now you might imagine his works would be withdrawn after the war. Well, because of a peculiar set of circumstances, with Knut Hamsun, the taboo has been turned on its head in a paradoxical way. After the war, he was to be tried for treason, 
but first his mental capacity had to be assessed to find out whether the old man was up to it. The psychiatric report placed him beyond the reach of the court, concluding that Hampson had permanently impaired mental abilities. Years later, one of Norway's leading professors of jurisprudence, Jos Andenes, said that if Hampson had been twenty or thirty years younger, the outcome would have been clear. He would have ended up with a long prison sentence. On account of his permanently impaired mental abilities, Hampson was acquitted, and this despite the fact that, in secret, while he was undergoing observation by the psychiatrists, he wrote his final book, Poyen Grudestir, on overgrown paths, in part a defence of his position during the war. There never really was a day of reckoning for Knut Hamsun, or for his artistic output. His novels retained their place in the Norwegian canon, and right up to our own day, the case of Knut Hamsun inspires intense polemics about whether the work of an artist and the life of an artist can be or should be considered separate from each other. In Norway, it is simply known as the Hamsun problem. Let's round off back at Saga Sailor, the Saga column deep in the mountain valley by the running river under Norway's highest peaks. The column has stood as a sort of a map pin at the heart of the Jotunheimen mountains since 1992. Progressive commentators wondered, at the time it was erected, whether it might signal that the post-war cancel culture was fading, maybe transitioning into a new phase of reconciliation. Well, it's certainly taken a while to really get going. It's really only now that Norwegian society is properly getting down and dirty with many of the taboos that govern political correctness in Norway after the war. What there has been of reconciliation since the war for artists came too late for sculptor Wilhelm Rasmussen. He died in 1965 without seeing the column erected. In the 1950s he'd often stayed at Elvesetid, the hotel I referred to as the Rivendell of Jotunheimen, and he became friends with the owner of the hotel, Ormund Elvesetid. After Rasmussen's death, Ormond worked for many years trying to persuade the authorities to complete and raise the saga column, to no avail. In the end he bought the monument off the Norwegian state and invested his own resources in having it finished and brought to its new home under the mountains. It seems that only time can heal the divisions caused by the war all those decades ago but there is a glimmer of hope in the example of Ormond Elvesetid. He made a friend of the sculptor who'd been imprisoned for treason. 
During the war, however, Ormond Elverseter himself had been imprisoned by the Nazis for his actions in the resistance. Next time on North by Norway, Norway, as described in the letters of its greatest ambassador, Edvard Grieg. But for now, tusen takk for at du hørte på. Thanks for listening. And if you like the cool North, tell all your cool friends. <laughs> <laughs>